The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams, starring Peter Jones as The Book. Arthur Dent, a man whose planet has been blown up, has been having a remarkable effect on the universe. And the most remarkable thing about this is that the only remarkable thing about him as a person is that he is remarkably unremarkable, in all respects other than that of having had his planet blown up. And this, of course, is the nub of the matter, because most of the things which stir the universe up in any way are caused by dispossessed people. There are two ways of accounting for this. One is to say that if everyone just sat at home, nothing would ever happen. This is very simple. The other is to say, as Ulan Kalufid has at great length in his book, everything you always wanted to know about guilt but were too ashamed to ask, that every being in the universe is tied to his birthplace by tiny invisible force tendrils composed of little quantum packets of guilt. If you travel far from your birthplace, these tendrils get stretched and distorted. This compares with an ancient Arcturan proverb, however fast the body travels, the soul travels at the speed of an Arcturan megacamel. This would mean, in these days of hyperspace and improbability drive, that most people's souls are wandering unprotected in deep space, in a state of some confusion, and this would account for a lot of things. Similarly, if your birthplace is actually destroyed, or in Arthur Dent's case, demolished, ostensibly to make way for a new hyperspace bypass, then these tendrils are severed and flap about at random. There are no people to be fed or whales to be saved. There is no washing up to be done. And these flapping tendrils of guilt can seriously disturb the space-time continuum. We have already seen how Arthur inadvertently caused war between the Gagogrants and the Vlahurks. We shall shortly see how it is directly attributable to this thoroughly unremarkable Earthman that the heart of gold, escaping from the Vogons on improbability drive, has now materialized in a highly mysterious cave on the even more mysterious planet Brontitol. We seem to be in some kind of cave, guys. Do you like caves? There's something very strange about this one. Caves are cool. Let's get out there and relate to it. This one's very cool. And you know, that gives me pause for thought. Because the planet Brontetal, which is where I think we are, is meant to have a warm, rich atmosphere. Perhaps we're on a mountain. Nope, no mountains on Brontetal. Well, let's get out and see. I'm hungry for a little action. In a cave? On Brontetal? Yeah, in a cave, wherever. You make your own action. Sling open the hatch, computer. Uh, okay. You go out and have a good time, and I'm sure that everything will be just hunky-dory. Oh, hum. Bring the robot, Arthur. I'm quite capable of bringing myself. We might be able to bury him somewhere. Thin, cold air. Mm, no mountains. Mm. Check altitude. Mm. Hey, guys, you may be interested to know that though this cave is not in a mountain, it is 13 miles above ground level. Hello? Oh, well, they'll find out. Oh, hum. Whee! 
can all be in this cave. We are in this cave. And what a wild cave to be in. We. <laughs> what a great cave, hey, Ford? Really amazing walls. Pure white rock. Marble. I've worked out that if I stick my left arm in my right ear, I can electrocute myself. What? Terminally. Is that so? I can do it at a moment's notice. Just say the word. Just call it. I think I'll go and hide. Why are we here? Now don't you stop as well. I mean in this cave. Why? Doesn't matter. Improbability drive. Strange shape. The mouth is perfectly circular. Can you see anything in the distance? Only sky. Must be on a hill. I'll go and take a look out. Okay. By the way, did you hear the computer calling us just before the hatch closed? Oh, screw the computer. I hope it gets plug rot. <laughs> Probably not important. I'll be back in a minute. Fine. Hey, Zephyr! How are you doing? Oh, freezing, man. Yeah. yeah. Every time I breathe out, I need an ice pick to get through it. Yeah. Strange, that. The computer said it was meant to have a warm, rich atmosphere. Yeah. Did you hear the computer calling after we left? No, Arthur thought he had as well. Yeah? Well, I must have imagined it then. Strange cave, this, isn't it? Hey, it's really weird. Did you hear a noise just then? A noise? Yeah. A sort of... <coughs> noise. No. Oh. Arthur? Doesn't seem to be about. Oh, well. I just wondered if he heard it. <laughs> Doesn't sound like he did. No. <laughs> this rock. Uh, marble. Marble, yeah. Uh, Ice-covered marble. Yeah, it's, 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 it's slippery as... Uh, uh, what's, what's the slipperiest thing you can think of? This moment? This marble. Right. This marble is as slippery as this marble. Oh! It is often said that a disproportionate obsession with purely academic or abstract matters indicates a retreat from the problems of real life. However, most of the people engaged in such matters say that this attitude is based on three things. Ignorance, 
stupidity and nothing else. Philosophers, for example, argue that they are very much concerned with the problems posed by real life, like, for instance, what do we mean by real and how can we reach an empirical definition of life and so on. One definition of life, albeit not a particularly useful one, might run something like this. Life is that property which a being will lose as a result of falling out of a cold and mysterious cave 13 miles above ground level. This is not a useful definition, A, because it could equally well refer to the subject's glasses if he happens to be wearing them, and B, because it fails to take into account the possibility that the subject might happen to fall onto the, say, the back of an extremely large passing bird. The first of these flaws is due to sloppy thinking, but the second is understandable because the mere idea is quite clearly utterly ludicrous. <laughs> Look, this is utterly ludicrous. What? Let go of my neck. No. Come on, let go. I can't. Yes, you can. It's perfectly simple. Unclasp your hands and buzz off. But I can't fly. What the devil are you doing up here? Falling. Get on with it. Go on. And the drop will kill me. You should have thought of that before you started out. No point saying, I think I'll just go for a quick drop, and if I get tired halfway down, I'll jump on a passing bird. It's not like that up here. It's all to do with the harsh realities of physics up in the sky. It's part of weight ratios, it's wing cross-sections, wing surface areas, it's practical aerodynamics. It's also cold and extremely windy. You'll be better off on the ground. <laughs> no, I won't. I'll be dead. Well, it's your habitat, not mine. It's not a question of whose habitat it is. It's a question of how fast you hit it. C couldn't you please just see your way to taking me down to ground level and dropping me off? No, I'm dropping you off here. It's as far down as I'm going. But I... No, 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 listen. My race had been through the whole ground thing, and I don't want to know. If the good Lord had meant us to walk, he would have given us sneakers. All right. Well, if that's the way you feel about it, I'm sorry to have trespassed on your time. <laughs> Goodbye! There's no need to go off in a huff about it. When you land, swing your knees round. Try and roll with it. Oh, hell. Uh, oh, oh, you again. Yes, it just occurred to me. Where did you fall from? Let go. First, tell me where you fell from. A huge, cold, white cave in the sky. You were in the cup. What do you mean, cup? The cup? It's part of the statue. What statue? The statue. I don't know what you're talking about. Let go. You mean you haven't seen the statue? No. Should I have done? Good, is it? Well, let go. Your claws are digging in my back. The only decent thing our ancestors ever did. Come on, I'll show you. I want to go down, not up. There. You see it? What? Look up, look up. You're hurting my neck. Tell me over. Look. That's it. But... It looks like, like, just like a plastic cup hanging in the sky. It's, it's about a mile long. Looks like plastic. Car from solid marble there. But the weight of it, what's supporting it? What keeps it there? Art. Art? It's only part of the main statue, 15 miles high. It's directly behind us, but I'll circle round in a moment. Fifteen miles high? Very impressive from up here, with the morning sun gleaming on it. But what is it? What's worth a statue fifteen miles high? It was of great symbolic importance to our ancestors. It's called Arthur Dent, throwing the Neutromatic Cup. Sorry, what did you say? There. What do you think of it? Uh, uh, I 
The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is an indispensable companion to all those who are keen to make sense of life in an infinitely complex and confusing universe. For though it cannot hope to be useful or informative on all matters, it does make the reassuring claim that where it is inaccurate, it is at least definitively inaccurate. In cases of major discrepancy, it is always reality that's got it wrong. So, for instance, when the guide was sued by the families of those who had died as a result of taking the entry on the planet trial, literally, it said ravenous bugbladder beasts often make a very good meal for visiting tourists instead of ravenous bugbladder beasts often make a very good meal of visiting tourists. The editors claimed that the first version of the sentence was the more aesthetically pleasing summoned a qualified poet to testify under oath that beauty was truth, truth beauty, and hoped thereby to prove that the guilty party in this case was life itself for failing to be either beautiful or true. The judges concurred. And in a moving speech, held that life itself was in contempt of court and duly confiscated it from all those there present before going off for a pleasant evening's ultra-golf. The guide's omissions are less easily rationalised. There is nothing on any of its pages to tell you on which planets you can expect suddenly to encounter 15-mile-high statues of yourself, nor how to react if it is immediately apparent that they have become colonies for flocks of giant evil-smelling birds, with all the cosmetic problems that implies. The nearest approach the guide makes to this matter is on page 7023, which includes the words, Expect the Unexpected. This advice has annoyed many hitchhikers in that it is A, glib, and B, a contradiction in terms. In fact, the very best advice it has to offer in these situations is to be found on the cover, where it says, in those now notoriously large and famously friendly letters, don't panic. Good, isn't it? What did you say? What do you expect me to say? Here I am on an unknown planet, hanging from the talons of, with all due respect, a giant bird, and you take it into your head to fly me round a 15-mile-high statue of myself. What do you expect me to say? Quite a good likeness, except the nose is a bit bent. Likeness? And the noxious, streaky substances down my face are less than lifelike. Likeness of you? You're Arthur Dent. Well, yes. The Arthur Dent. Well, the Arthur Dent I don't know about, but that Arthur Dent is me. Can I ask you where you got it from? Our ancestors built it centuries ago. Don't panic. But this is truly incredible. I wouldn't argue with that. I think you'd better come and meet the rest of us. They're going to be terribly surprised. And so I think are you. Where do you all live? In your right ear. Hold on, we'll dive into it. What's the matter? Oh, the smell. What? The smell. It's terrible. I can't hear what you're saying. Why don't you wash my ear out? I said, I can't hear what you're saying. Oh, never mind. Hear that noise up ahead? What, all that squawking? The bird people of Brontidor. That's us. Last of an unhappy race. What's wrong? Oh, just under us. The once proud people living in a foul-smelling ear. <laughs> Perfectly. Hail, bird brothers! Don't you have names? What's the point? Birds, I bring you a visitor. After all these years, he visits us. This is Arthur Dent. What do I say? Just say hello. 
Hello. I don't actually understand what's going on. Why are they making that appalling noise? Our leader is coming to talk to you. Leader? You have a leader? Yes. We call him the wise old bird. Ah. And this is him, is it? This is him. I see. After death. After death. Well, 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 well. Sorry, should I know you? Know me? Ah, oh, no, no, probably not. I but he there kind enough to call the wise old bird. <laughs> now, where was I? God knows. Well, let me tell you, with frank admiration... Why admiration? What have I done? I fell out of a cup. That through all the generations that have passed since we deserted the surface of this planet, girded up our limbs and shook the dust off our... From our... Things, uh, whatchamacallits. Your what? Your face has been... Shook the dust from your what? Has been the one solitary candle that has illumined the recesses of our scraggy old bird brains. Why doesn't he want to say what you shook the dust from? (laughs) Well, can we come back to that point later? Let's have some light, shall we? Bring light. 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 Yes, that we may gaze on the face of Arthur Dent. Oh, look, it really is filthy in here. So this is how you appear to our ancestors that night. What (laughs) night? What are you talking about? Imagine our planet at the height of its technological civilization. Why? In the days when we, too, walked on the ground, much as you do even now. Why does everyone want to tell me their life stories? My dear old thing, you have such a sympathetic face. Is that why you've done what you've done all over it? I'm sorry, but on my world I had a nice home and a good job with prospects. And I get angry at the thought that my life suddenly consists of sitting in sewage-filled models of my own ear being patronised by a lot of demented birds. Now keep keep I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Carry on. Such forthrightness, such fearless outspokenness, the qualities you awakened in us... When? Now listen, our world suffered two blights. One was the blight of the robots. Tried to take over, did they? Oh, my dear fellow, no, 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 no. Much worse than that. They told us they liked us. No. Well, it's not their fault, poor things. They've been programmed to. But you can imagine how we felt. Or at least our ancestors. Ghastly. Precisely. And then one night, the sky boiled. Did what? Boiled, dear fellow. In the most improbable way. And this gigantic vision appeared in the sky. A man with a new traumatic machine. You, Arthur Dent. And you said... uh... Listen, you stupid machine, it tastes filthy. Take this cup back. And you threw the cup at it. An astounding revelation. It was nothing. You were sarcastic to it. You said... uh... So I'm a masochist on a diet, am I? You told it to... Shut up! In a moment, we realized... Truth. Just because the little wretches liked us, it didn't mean to say we had to like them back. And that night, we rounded up every last one of the little creeps. Bring out your dishwashers! Bring out your digital watches with the special snooze alarms! Bring out your TV chess games! Bring out your auto gardeners, techno teachers, lovematics! Bring out your friendly household robots! Shove them on the car! What is this? Have we not shared and enjoyed with you? Shut up, you little toadies! Get on the car! And we set them to work to build a statue as an eternal reminder 
After which we sent them to a slave planet where they're doing a very useful job making continent toupees. Making what? Toupees for worlds where they've used up all the forests. Ah, look, the statue. How did you get the cupboard to stay where it is, unsupported? It stays there because it's artistically bright. What? The law of gravity isn't as indiscriminate as people often think. You learn things like that when you're a bird. But you didn't start out as birds. Oh, no, no, no. We were forced to re-evolve by the second and more deadly blood. <laughs> and that was already too advanced by the time we rid ourselves of the robot blood. Ah, what woe was upon us. All right. What woe was upon you? <laughs> too terrible to speak of. Imagine this. We walked. What's so wrong about that? Nothing. We went for strolls, we jogged, we marched, we ambled, we competed in 500-meter hurdles. Imagine how our ancestors felt to walk through our great cities, stride across the pedestrian precincts, stroll along walkways, maybe wander into a small wine bar to have lunch with a girlfriend. What? Ooh, yeah. Maybe play... <laughs> maybe play footsie under the table. <laughs> And she would say how she'd been walking here, strolling there, wandering into shops, maybe trying to buy a pair of, uh, uh bison tea. You know, some, uh, some watching call. What things? Are these the things you refuse to talk about brushing the dust off? Oh, come on. And then they would saunter off into the sunset. Yes, very idyllic. So what went wrong? Ah, uh, too terrible to speak of. Then why did you bring it up in the first place? Suffice it to say that we have sworn never to walk upon the ground again. What's the matter with it? Oh, if you want to know, you will have to descend to the ground where you will encounter those who have come to unravel the unspeakable nightmare of our past. All right, how do I get down there? There's an ancient express elevator down your spine that will take you straight down to ground level. Well, anything to get out of my ear... Show me the way. Can't be much more unspeakable than this lot. In today's modern galaxy, there is, of course, very little still held to be unspeakable. Many words and expressions, which only a matter of decades ago were considered so distastefully explicit that, were they merely to be breathed in public, the perpetrator would be shunned, barred from polite society, and, in extreme cases, shot through the lungs, are now thought to be very healthy and proper and their use in everyday speech is seen as evidence of a well-adjusted, relaxed, and totally unf***ed up personality. So, for instance, when in a recent national speech, the financial minister of the royal world estate of Qual Vista actually dared to say that due to one thing and another, and the fact that no one had made any food for a while, and that the king seemed to have died, and that most of the population had been on holiday now for over three years, the economy had now arrived at what he called one whole juju flop situation. Everyone was so pleased he felt able to come out and say it, that they quite failed to notice that their 5,000-year-old civilization had just collapsed overnight. But though even words like juju flop, swat, and turlingdrome are now perfectly acceptable in common usage, there is one word that is still beyond the pale. The concept it embodies is so revolting that the publication or broadcast of the word is utterly forbidden in all parts of the galaxy except one, where they don't know what it means. That word is Belgium, and it is only ever used 
by loose-tongued people like Zephod Bebelbrox in situations of dire provocation, such as... And I'll tell you another interesting thing. I don't want to be interested. I don't want to be stimulated or relaxed. I have my horizons broadened. I just want to be rescued, Ford. I just want to be sweating well rescued. Well, I'm sorry. I've told you. No way. Oh, Belgium, man! Belgium! All right. I'll get my towel. Your towel? Yeah. I'll hold on to this end. I'll throw you the other end. There. Got it? I got it. Okay, pull. I'm pulling. Come on, pull. I'm coming. Come on, pull. Come on, pull. Come on. Meanwhile, Arthur is in the thick of it. No sooner has he emerged from the cavernous gap between two of the statue's toes into a thick pall of smoke than he has been accosted thus. Halt! Look out there! What? Pandolfo! Who, me? Pandolfo! Do I know you? Arthur Pandolfo! Well, without knowing you, it's hard to tell. I mean, I quite like some people, others not so much. Answer! Well, it has to be said that on balance, very few of the people I count, or rather counted as friends, most of them have been disintegrated, you see, very few of them have piercing red eyes, black armor, and laser rifles. So I think the answer is probably veering towards... Ah, well, that clinches it, I'm afraid. I don't think we're going to be friends. This planet is the property of the Dolman Sackstill Galactic Corporation. Trespassers are to be shot. Whose property? What about the bird people? You have established communication with the avian birds. Well, chatted. Didn't understand a lot of it, to be honest. What do you mean, perverts? Perverts, subversives. All perverts, subversives, and trespassers are to be shot. Well, that should keep you busy. Uh, bye now. Halt! I demand you to halt. And also accosted thus. Halt! Who goes there, friend or foe? Depends what you like. Halt or I fire! And finally... Thus. Get down. What? Into the trench. Come on, there's a hidden shelter. Oh, thanks. Shh, now. Who are you? Archaeologist. What? Shh. Archaeologist? Yes. What are you doing? Digging, researching, trying to stay alive. With that lot around? Most particularly because that lot are around. With all the laser guns and the armor and things? Yes. Odd thing, they all seem to be limping. Yes. Why? Blisters. Ah, so that's why they're limping. Yes. Why have they got blisters? That, whoever you are, is a very good question. And the answer? That's what I'm here to find out. Really? Strange job for an archaeologist. Why should a nice young archaeologist, whose name incidentally is Lintilla, be particularly interested in a band of limping soldiers? Will Ford and Zaphod have to go through all the business with the wise old bird, 
Or will they persuade the bird they've so probably landed on to take them to the ground so that they can get straight on with the next bit? Find out in the next intriguing episode of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. In that episode of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Peter Jones was the book, Simon Jones was Arthur Dent, Geoffrey McGiven was Ford Prefect, Mark Wing Davy was Zaphod Beeblebrox, Stephen Moore was Marvin, David Tate was Eddie, Ronald Baddeley was Bird One, John Baddeley was Bird Two and the Foot Warrior, Rula Lenska was Lintilla, and John LeMessurier was the Wise Old Bird. Radiophonic sound and music was by Paddy Kingsland of the BBC Radiophonic Workshop. The programme was written by Douglas Adams and produced by Geoffrey Perkins. Parents of young organic life forms are warned that towels can be harmful if swallowed in large quantities. Thank you.